Hello, and welcome to the Recovery Matters podcast from CCAR, the podcast where putting recovery first is always the goal. Here we present interviews, discussions, stories, and speeches to cultivate the understanding and acceptance of the power, hope, and healing of recovery from alcohol and other addictions. Here are your hosts, Phil and Sandy Valentine. Hey, Phil, you know one of the things I get to do? Today or just in general? Well, it was today that I started it, but I do it every year. I get to interview graduate students to see if they want to become my next graduate assistant. How are those going? Well, it was really exciting today, but it was interesting because I was interviewing somebody in recovery with 12-step as the foundation of their recovery and how they were ready to begin exploring multiple pathways of recovery. And when I started working in the recovery community three and a half years ago, even though I'd been shadowing the work you do around multiple pathways for a long time, I still felt 12-step was the safest, best route. Mm -hmm. And working with young adults, it has become super clear to me that we are all wired so differently. And however you want to create your tapestry of recovery can be the most beautiful thing. And I realized that I had been creating a tapestry for many years, even though the core of my recovery was 12-step too. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited about our guest today because I think we're going to explore some of the other pathways. Yeah, we got some powerhouse women on our show today, don't we? What am I going to do with like three of you all together? I don't know what that's going to be like. You can just sit back if you want. I'll handle it. So, uh, Adrian, would you like to say hello and introduce yourself and who you are and what you do? And we'll get right to you too, Mary Beth. Sure. Thanks, Phil. Thanks for having us on the show. Uh, my name is Adrian Miller. I'm a I'm a competent woman, and I am the president and CEO of Women for Sobriety. We are the longest-standing um, gender-specific peer support program. Um, we were founded in 1975, so we've been around just slightly little longer than I have. Mm -hmm. um, and our approach is really empowerment-based and cognitive behavioral-based. And so our, our big focus is helping women change their thinking, to change their acting, to change their life and to create um, happiness and self-efficacy so that drugs and alcohol just aren't attractive anymore. Beautiful. Thank you. I love that. Mary Beth. Well, I'm a board member for two organizations. One is Life Frank Secular Recovery, and our um, philosophy is based on what we call the three S's, sobriety, secularity, and self-help or self-empowerment. And for us, the secularity side just means that out of respect for all faiths and none, we don't do religion in meetings. On the other hand, many members have personal spiritual religious beliefs and Life Brain doesn't have any opinion about that whatsoever. Um, and the self-empowerment side is really a big part of the program. We talk about building a personal recovery plan, a plan that'll work for you specifically. And then I'm also on the board for She Recovers Foundation, which is for women who are recovering not just from substance use disorder, although about 75% of the members do have a substance use disorder, but also in recovery from other things such as trauma, mental health, um, you know, gambling, eating, other behavioral disorders, grief, any number of combinations. And the reason that She Recovers developed that approach is because, as I'm sure we're all aware, most women in recovery, men too, have other issues that need to be addressed during that process. And in She Recovers, it's just all together instead of sort of being siloed out. Mm. 
So how did you two end up connected? Well, I actually had an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal about a year and a half ago called I Beat Addiction Without God. And um, I had I got sober in 93, 94, and I combined a number of different programs of which Women for Sobriety was the first secular option I found. And so I mentioned them in my Wall Street Journal piece and I sent it to them. I thought, hey, did you know you're in the Wall Street Journal? <laughs> um, and then Adrian and I started talking, uh, you know, sharing ideas, structural things with our organizations. You know, when COVID hit, we talked about how we're adjusting to going on Zoom, that kind of thing. And then we just thought that we could make a good um, united package to talk about not just our organizations, but about multiple pathways in general. Adrian, is that how you remember it? <laughs> that, that is how I remember it. In fact, when she reached out, we had all, I had already shared the Wall Street Journal article on a, on a few things. So I was pretty excited to talk to Mary Beth and, um, and Mary Beth, I'm going to disclose something about you that, that you shared with me, um, which I know you're quite public about. Um, Mary Beth would share, had shared that she was one of the first women in her local group with the drug addiction because WFS was very focused on alcohol um, at the time. And, and Mary Beth was a pioneer in opening up women for sobriety to, to all substance use disorders. So I feel a lot of gratitude for that because of course I came to women for sobriety with all the things. Um, and so I, that's always held a special place in my heart that Mary Beth helped open that up and help create space for me in the organization as well. That's cool. I think that's one of the most beautiful things about people in recovery is they're, they're planting seeds all over. And the beauty is that Mary Beth got to hear that from you, right? Because we often don't know where those seeds have taken root and grown. So that's pretty cool. Mary Beth, you have a book that has a catchy title. Tell us about that. I do. I call my personal story from junkie to judge because I was actually an IV meth addict in high school. Um, the short version is childhood abuse led to childhood addiction. So I started early and I got really, you know, extreme really young. Um, but eventually I, I didn't get sober until I was 32, but six years into sobriety, I went to law school. And eventually in 2014, I was appointed a federal administrative law judge. And so I use that junkie to judge arc sort of as a shorthand version of showing that you can do anything in recovery, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, no matter where you were in your addiction, you can have a beautiful life in, in beyond your wildest dreams. And so the book, which will be coming out in January is also called From Junkie to Judge. Incredible. Um, that's a thumbnail version. You said that a few times, I'm sure, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And the other thing I, I do like to emphasize about that, even though the judge is the professional side of it, I, I do not in any way believe that's the most important part of my recovery. It's just sort of a shorthand for it, right? I mean, it's certainly been much more important in my life that I I found a way out of the chaos and the obsession and that I have, you know, a, a happy marriage and I'm a good friend and a good partner and I'm able to do my advocacy work and be of use. All those things are much more important than the fact that I ended up as a judge, but it's just sort of a nice phrase to really illustrate the arc that our lives can take in recovery. Thank you. The, the other thing that I find particularly inspiring about Mary Beth's story is you know, there, there is often this kind of unofficial hierarchy in the recovery world, right? Where, you know, IV drug users are kind of, 
I call it voted voted the least likely to succeed, right? And and so, you know, this this story is so inspiring and, and such a great illustration that you know anything is possible in recovery, regardless of of how you used or what you used or any of that. I just I. I'm so in awe of what Mary Beth has accomplished. Yeah, back in the late 80s when I entered recovery, I would identify myself as an alcoholic, which I was okay with. But a cocaine addict? I still had so much shame around that. I was like, what is that? Uh, I don't have that same shame anymore, but I did early in recovery. Adrian, mm -hmm. what's, your, what, what's your recovery story? Well, I, you know, I also started using at a very young age um, in my teens, and um, I spent a lot of time running from some of my um, adolescent trauma um, with drugs and alcohol, and I was very careful with all those hard drugs, right, because only drug addicts, mm -hmm. um, you know, use heroin every day. I just used it a few times, <laughs> right? So... <laughs> So I wasn't a drug addict. I used crystal meth a few times, you know, every once in a while. So I wasn't really a drug addict. And I was one of those classic kind of party hoppers um, from drug to drug. And, but consistently, um, alcohol and marijuana were always there and, you know, always there to help even out whatever extreme I was on on, on some other substance. And those are really the two that as my life began to calm down and as I began to get rid of all those bad drugs and doing the air quotes because alcohol, I think now looking back is one of the worst drugs um, ever. Um, but um, yeah, so I found myself, you know, 30 years old um, with uh, quote unquote, just an alcohol and marijuana problem. And I could not shake them. I, you know, I killed a marriage. I um, got kicked out slash dropped out of school. Um, and everything just kind of fell apart. And, you know, I felt so silly, right? Because oh, it's just alcohol and, and marijuana um, compared to all of the other things that I had um, played with mm -hmm. for so many years. But, um, yeah, it turns out that just alcohol and marijuana are still pretty bad for creating a happy life. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I did decide uh, to to give those up, and it was not a straight line. Um, there was a lot of negotiating in that first year. I failed every single negotiation, um, and eventually, you know, I really just threw my heart and soul into the Women for Sobriety program and um, started practicing those principles and, and was able to get sober and, and establish some stability and go back to school. I did graduate. Um, I did become a drug counselor. I was originally a, a coach, recovery coach, um, trained in the CCAR method, actually. Um, and then I became a certified addiction counselor and then um, started working for Women for Sobriety. How cool is that? Um, so you guys are here to talk about some different programs outside the 12 steps, right? Talk about, to us about your 12-step experience or experiences and what happened. And, yeah. You want me to go first, Mary Beth? <laughs> sure. I, uh... <laughs> 
So I, you know, I really fought the 12 steps in the beginning. Um, I was raised in the metaphysical church and God is everywhere and I'm God and you're God and the TV's God and, and the concept of higher power was very um, difficult for me to wrap my head around. So I found women for sobriety. Um, I tried some smart meetings. We didn't have life ring in my area at the time, um, but I really liked women for sobriety. But I was still really struggling and I still really needed to sit in the room with other people who were going through the same thing I was going through. And so I softened my approach a little and started, I did go to AA meetings and I, I found one in particular that I really liked. And I went to both um, WFS and AA for my first year. Um, and I heard a lot of good things in the rooms. Um, I would get a lot of questions at breaks, like, what's your sponsor say about that? And I would say, well, you know, this isn't my primary program, so I don't have a sponsor, but I really appreciated your share today. And their eyes would kind of glaze over and they'd wander away. Um, but, you know, I did, I'm not, I'm not against AA. I think there's um, really wonderful things, really wonderful community. You can't beat the accessibility. I don't still attend AA meetings, but I would if I needed to. Mm -hmm. um, I live in a pretty rural area now and, and um, don't have the energy to start a WFS meeting here. So um, if I need to, I'll go to other meetings. I went to refuge recovery for a while. And um, so I think AA is, is really great. And it was a part of my early story. It's just not a part of it anymore. Mm -hmm. What are the components of Women for Sobriety? Like uh, You mentioned cognitive behavioral techniques, which is also part of Smart Recovery. What are, what are the pieces that have really worked for you? Do you think um, our program is based on 13 affirmations? We call them the acceptance statements. They're very um, positive, you know, how to change your thinking. Um, and also they really build up your self-esteem. So when I came to recovery, I literally came to recovery from the psych ward. Um, and everything had just come to a head. You know, I flunked out slash got kicked out of school and um, I was suicidal and, and I was just in a really low place. Um, so the Women for Sobriety program, helping to build up that self-esteem was incredibly helpful for me. Um, also the empowerment approach, um, it, it never told me that I was powerless. It, you know, our first statement is, um, I have a life-threatening problem that once had me, right? And that I could, I could own that and I could now take control of that and do the things that I needed to do to accept the responsibility for my own life. Um, I think that's, that's a really important component of the program for me and for a lot of um, other women that I've talked to in the program. And, um, and then the other thing that I found very helpful about it is it's really much more self-directed you know, our statements are, there's 13 of them. You don't have to work them in order. You kind of, you choose the one that you need that day um, or that week or whatever. And um, you don't have to get stuck anywhere because if you're working on statement two and you just can't get it, you go on to nine and maybe nine's gonna make two easier the next time you go back to it. Um, but it's much more kind of emergent that way it, you can kind of follow your needs and as things come up in your recovery, you can start to focus on those. Um, and I really appreciate as well the, the focus in WFS on building a rich support network. 
So, um, you know, going to other types of meetings or um, getting therapy or working with your doctor um, if you need medications or, um, you know, just building a large support community um, for to meet all your needs and not just um, not relying on one person or, you know, one group, but building a really rich um, textured support network. You know, I work with a lot of young women um, and I guess I was a little bit in denial. So I was so codependent that, you know, 30 years ago when I met Phil, his nickname for me was Controllerella. Um, and I would love to say that I have been cured, um, but I have had to continuously work on the extremes of codependency. And part of me thought that it was being raised by um, first year of generation X. And, but I was raised by um, folks born in the 20s, which I forget is before boomers, I think. But um, I thought it was because of how I was raised that I was so codependent and, and submissive. Phil's probably going to laugh at that. But I've, I see in these young women really a lot of the challenges around codependency that I kind of thought maybe we had made more headway as women and and it's not what I'm seeing and I don't know what you're seeing as you work with um, younger women if you're seeing still codependency is a big issue we um we don't tend to talk a lot about codependency in women for sobriety um we talk about dependency um, you know, women being dependent on others or um, putting other people's needs first. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly there, there are women and women first variety who, you know, also participate in codependency anonymous or, you know, um, but that's not really a concept that we talk about in that way yeah. in our program. Um, you know, we, we go back and forth. A lot of our early literature is, is um, you know, it's from the 70s. Um, in the early 80s, and it's, you know, it, it feels outdated when you read it, and yet when you really go into it, you know, it's talking about, you know, women being torn between doing all that housework and their husband and taking care of themselves, and and when you really read it, and especially when you look at, you know, some of the COVID data about the impact that that's had on women, it's really hard to look at that and say, oh yeah, that's super outdated, um, because it feels outdated, but I, I think you really hit the nail on the head there. I, I don't think we've made as much progress um, as, as we might want to think that we have. Thanks, Adrian and Mary Beth. So we'll go back to the question about 12 steps and your experience and, and all that. So I went into a women's recovery house when I was 32. And in my mind, I was going for medical treatment, right? And uh, so the, the first day that I was there, as they did every day, they did a step study. And it so happened, they were doing step three, you know, they read the step and either read the big book, just, you know, discussion or the NA text discussion and then talk. And so being the good student that I am, uh, and for those listening, I think you know, but in case it's turned my, I made the decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God or higher power. Um, so I raised my hand 
and I said, you know, what about me? You know, I'm an atheist. And they said, well, you have to have a higher power or you're going to fail. I said, but I don't believe in a higher power. And they, they just repeatedly told me that I had to agree I was powerless. I had to accept the higher power. I had to work the steps or I was going to fail. And this was really a shock. I was very surprised to find that I was only being offered one option and it was an option that wasn't going to work for me. And there was a lot of pressure to conform. Even at the 12 step meetings I went to, everyone, if I would say, what about if you don't believe in a higher power? It was all, you have to, you have to. This is the only way, the one and only way. Um, and so literally like within a week I, of being in recovery, I had to decide what the heck am I gonna do here? You know, these experts are telling me to do something I cannot do. And so what I decided was I was just gonna to try to leave my mind open and listen and find ideas that would be useful and just ignore everything else. Um, and so, you know, I, I did all the rehab classes, like how to, you know, identify and handle triggers and the recommendations about building a support network and all that. And I actually went through every step and tried to see, I read the big book description and the NA text description. Is there anything here of use to me? Anything, any core idea? And so, for example, I didn't agree with powerless, but what I did decide was that I could agree I was powerless to moderate. <laughs> like Mary Beth can't moderate. Um, and I looked at step three as sort of a lesson in limited control, right? That I could try to reach my goals and I should, but I couldn't always control the outcome. And so I did that. But I still really was afraid at times that they were right, that the universal opinion that I was going to fail without a higher power was right. And so um, when I got home from rehab and I was inpatient for five months, I went to the library because, you know, there wasn't a Google. It's 1994. <laughs> so I went to the library to see, are there actually any other options that they didn't tell me about? And lo and behold, there were. Um, and the first one I found was Women for Sobriety. And I attended those meetings, as Adrian mentioned, and read their materials. Then I found Rational Recovery, which basically is now SMART. And I read all of their materials. I went to their meetings. And I found SOS, Secular Organization for sobriety, which has mostly died out and life ring broke off of SOS in 97. And so I went to those meetings and at all those readings. And so I did really what I had started to do from the beginning. I never ended up following any one program. I just pulled the ideas from all of them that I thought would be useful to me. I do what LifeRing today would call build a personal recovery plan, but that terminology didn't exist, but that's what I did. I just pulled the ideas that I thought would be helpful. And I just, you know, read everything I could get my hands on and went to the different meetings to just develop. I, I viewed the meetings and the materials as sort of sources of good ideas for me that I could decide what to incorporate. And so that's how I ended up doing it. What are some of the personal ideas you took with you from all those programs? I mean, the self-empowerment was a big relief for me because in, in 12 Steps and in Rehab, they were telling me that I was running on self-will and that was a negative. <laughs> um, and so when I found Women for Sobriety, which as Adrian introduced herself, the intro in a WFS meeting isn't I'm Mary Beth and I'm an addict. It's I'm Mary Beth and I'm a competent woman. And that was a really powerful statement for me. And Rational Recovery and SOS and now Lifering also focused on self-empowerment. And so I sort of, it was like a, I was able to take a deep breath for the first time that um, other people had built their own plan or built a plan where they got to make decisions for themselves, guide themselves forward, not required to have a higher power. It was just like, 
<sighs> okay, I, you know, I'm going to be all right. This is a valid approach. Other people have done it. And, um, and it, it really helped me to, to make those the choices. Uh, it was, it really, it built my confidence and my competence, right? That I started to feel stronger, that I wasn't just who I was in my addiction, but that I was actually becoming a stronger woman, a more competent woman or more confident woman. And that applied to all areas of my life and not just to my um, substance use disorder recovery. And so that was absolutely the most valuable thing. It's fascinating to me that, um, um, you know, I come from a 12-step background, and um, I don't really attend meetings at much or at all anymore. Um, and as I've worked at CCAR for the last 23 years, I've come across more and more pathways of recovery. And I love this idea of building uh, a menu, let's say, that if somebody's new to recovery, here are your options, right? Um, I've also found that if you're in 12 steps, you're pretty much anti any other pathways. And if you're outside of 12 steps, you become anti 12 step. But I don't hear that in either one of your journeys or your experiences. Is, is this a myth I've created or have seen or do you see it as well? Well, I, I will say this. Uh, there was in, in the beginning, there was a part of me that was really angry. And when I found the options, I really felt that my recovery had been put at risk for unnecessarily. They were telling me to do something I couldn't do. And they didn't try to find an option that would work for me. They insisted I conform or fail. And that was a constant message. So I was more angry then than I am now. Mm. Um, but I never, and in 12-step meetings, I was also told this is the only way. But I really, um, I have no concerns about 12 steps as a program, if it's a good fit for people. I mean, you know, if you find the right place for you, that's, I'm sure your version of the relief I felt when I found the right place mm -hmm. for me. My only concern is, is if it's ever said that 12 steps is the only way or a better way, because neither one of those statements is true. And I will also say that I, I think it, in modern times, there is more openness in the 12-step members that I know, because, for example, She Recovers Foundation is a multiple paths program, and many women also belong to 12 steps, or they belong to WFS or LifeRing, and everyone there accepts the other paths. Um, in LifeRing, even, if a member feels it would be valuable to also go to another program, LifeRing is 100% behind mm -hmm. that, that that's part of building your personal recovery plan is to see what might work for you. You can say in a life ring meeting, I heard this thing at 12 steps last week and I thought it might be useful for the group. So I'm going to share it. And no one would think that was odd or inappropriate. You know, um, we, we accept that. And I think more and more, there is more crossover than what there was when I first got sober. Agreed. Adrian. Your thoughts, and and I think there, there 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 is that conception, and yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right. There there is a lot of um, uh, there are some people who you know AA the only way. We've had women order our literature and then ask to return it because their sponsor told them that that's going to take them away from their step work, and you know that they shouldn't be exploring the women for sobriety and things like that are very very difficult to hear like on a deep soul level for me um because i too was told you know if, if you don't do this you're gonna fail 
And, you know, I, I left treatment thinking I'm just going to die. I'm just going to die because this isn't going to work for me. And if this is the only way to get sober, I'm just going to drink myself to death. And so I do think that is very dangerous. That's the only part of, of the AA, you know, the AA, the only way kind of thing that, that challenges me um, personally, because I know how dangerous that message can be to some people. I hear that message less and less, but it does still come up. Um, and, and WFS has always um, been very supportive. But I think also because AA is, is so considered the default and you know the, the professional recovery field has so many people who, who recovered using AA and that's really all they know. Um, and and it, a lot of the underlying philosophies of AA are just kind of assumed parts of recovery, right? Like spirituality. I was surprised when I went to school to be a counselor you know, there would be chapter, a chapter in the book about spirituality and how important that is for recovering. The closest WFS gets to spirituality is the fun, uh, one of our statements says the fundamental object of life is emotional and spiritual growth. And we kind of leave it at that, right? Like everyone has some kind of spiritual experience and spiritual shift. I say kind of a soul shift in recovery. There's no way to go from being dependent on substances to being sober without having some kind of deep soul shift. Um, but that kind of conscious focus on spirituality, it's just not a part of everyone's recovery. And I've seen that over and over, um, but it's such an assumed part of recovery because of the dominance of AA. Uh, and a lot of my outreach work, you know, people will ask things very specifically, do you have sponsors? You know, do you have steps? How do people work the steps? You know, that kind of thing. And so it, it sets up this dichotomy, right? And it, it sets the tone for the conversations. And so it can come across as, you know, when I talk about, no, we don't have sponsors. We encourage women to develop these rich, wide support networks. Um, that can sound anti-sponsor or anti-AA, um, or some people can take it that way. Um, so I think part of it is just, you know, this, the, the ubiquitousness of the 12 step approach, and it does kind of set it up as an opposition to these other, to other um, programs, but it doesn't have to, right? Lots of women do both mm -hmm. in our program. Lots of women do many things. And I think we're starting to get more aware of that. Um, I, it's filtering uh... down. I worked a lot on shame last year because I realized that I was having shame reactions to all manner of things, um, things that I controlled, things that I didn't control, things about myself, things about people around me. I would feel shame for people, like even a stranger. <laughs> so I really worked hard on kicking shame to the curb. And But one of the things that I strive really hard with where I work on a college campus is to make sure that no student who returns to use in whatever form that that is for them will feel shame coming back to us. But it has to be really purposeful. And so 
I think one of the drawbacks of the programs we've been talking about is there can often be a message of shame and they don't come back. Mm -hmm. And so the programs that you guys work with, how do you keep that door open so that when they're ready, those resources are still there? So I'll talk for first for LifeRing. So in LifeRing, we actually have crosstalk where members talk directly to each other. Now there's a convener there to ensure that the crosstalk is positive or neutral and that any uh, suggestions are really couched in the suggestion terminology. And also it's a personal recovery plan. So it's our job to filter suggestions anyway. But if someone has a slip or a relapse, it's really viewed as a learning opportunity. And so the conversation might be things like, looking backward now, were there any signs that you missed at the time? Or what were sort of the specific circumstances that you think were important that caused you to have that slip or relapse, to, to notice them and have a plan for what you're gonna do if that happens again, to reduce your risk in the future. In life, we don't actually require that people track their time. They can if they want to, but it's not helpful for everyone to do that. And so it's certainly not a requirement. It's an individual choice whether to do that. Um, and in She Recovers, it's, it, there's a private Facebook group and in the meetings, there's a lot of support for the women who are struggling, you know, especially a lot of times in early recovery, we're having multiple, you know, slips or relapses over time, however you want to define it. They're struggling to maintain any lengthy sobriety. And that, again, is just um, women will offer support, share their personal experience that they, they went through that and found a way out the other side. Um, in both LifeRing and She Recovers, sometimes there'll be questions like, well, can you see some improvement? For example, sometimes it, it takes time to get to full abstinence, but maybe you're using less often or you're using for shorter periods of time when you slip. Well, that would want to be something to be noticed. That's an improvement. You use three times in the last six months. That's much better. Good job. You know, just keep pushing forward until you can get to your abstinence goal, if that is your goal. So we, we talk about it in those ways. Mm -hmm. we, we try, and you know, I think there is this, natural tendency when you're trying to do something if you're trying to work towards abstinence and and you you work against that goal one night um you know there is that natural shame and part of that is a little bit useful right because it's showing you that okay that's really outside of my values that i'm working towards in my life and so you know a little bit of uncomfortable feelings about the fact that you had a used episode i think can be valuable and I don't think we should um, completely try to not feel that but we don't move in there right we don't mm -hmm. move into that shame because we know that that just keeps us um, sicker so um, women for sobriety you know number eight the fundamental object of life is emotional and spiritual growth so when somebody does return after or report a used episode it's really okay well what what did you learn um, what what have you accomplished so far? What's your emotional and spiritual growth look like so far? We also don't encourage or discourage the counting of days, um, although many women do it. Um, I myself am not really clear on exactly when my last use was. I had to count back at one point because I was not convinced that it was going to work again. Um, but yeah, we really focus on, okay, well, what have you learned and, and how have you grown? Um, one really powerful moment for me was 
at um, one of our annual conferences and one of my friends said, you know, I did the math and I've been sober 98.6% of the last five years. And that's pretty amazing, right? Like, <laughs> and so how each woman chooses to celebrate her emotional and spiritual and, and abstinence growth is really up to the individual woman and women for sobriety. That like um, describing recovery like 98.6% of the time I was. <laughs> um, I've often, and I've written about this, we, I was trained to count recovery consecutively instead of cumulative. So the example I use is if somebody was in recovery 20 years, they relapse for three days, traditionally we're told they have to start fresh and like those 20 years disappeared. And so this, that percentage of time, that's fascinating to me. Um, you two are hooked up together and asked to be together. Is there a message you're trying to convey together that you, would, you want us to know about? I think, you know, for me, it's that, you know, you can take different parts of different programs and we don't have to be in opposition to each other, right? It's not a, it's not a this or that. Um, and that's one of the things I really love about my work with Mary Beth is, you know, we we're representing three different organizations all play really well with each other. And, and I always say there's enough addiction to go around, <laughs> right? There's enough for all of us. We can all exist in the same space and, and help each other and prop each other up. And because the goal is saving lives, right? This is not a light thing that we are dealing with. I mean, we're, we're literally talking about people saving their own lives. And so there's no need to be in competition in that space. Um, we can work together. We can, and we're going to be more powerful. And that's, a, you know, also a fairly universal principle of recovery, although not a part of everyone's recovery, but that bonding together with a community, a support community. And so if we can do that on an individual level, why can't we do that on an organizational level, right? And build bridges between these organizations and work together to get our message out there and to make sure that everyone knows that they have so many options for their recovery. There's no reason to think that doesn't work for me, so I'm going to die, right? Mm -hmm. Don't go find something that works for you. There's so many things out there these days. So for me, that's a core piece of, of the message for us working together. Yeah, and what I would add to that is sometimes when I speak like at recovery houses, um, they'll say, well, how do I know what's right for me? I'm, you know, I've been using up until today or, or how did, why does life ring trust that I can make decisions for myself? Um, and my answer always is, I really believe if you read up, just read the philosophy, the principles of these different options, one or two of them are going to call your name. One or two of them are going to feel like those are my people. Those are principles that are going to be a good fit for me. And go there. Don't, I don't see any reason to try to force yourself into a, a box, say 12 steps, if it's not a good fit, just because it's the dominant model. You don't have to, you know, 
do it and then make all these compromises. Well, I'll do it, but I'll be quiet about my lack of belief in a higher power or this or that. You don't have to make those compromises. There are many, many choices and there'll be a choice or two that's going to fit with your approach to life, with your learning process, with the way you view the world. Start there. Um, and the other thing that I think is important is to realize that what you need or what's a good fit can change over time. And so sometimes we start with one uh, program and we, and it does do good things for us, but then we realize, you know, I really like that piece of that other program over there. I think I might want to partake in that. And so go ahead, you know, keep your mind open. Once you have the awareness of what the options are, you'd be more likely to be able to incorporate something else later. If it turns out that you're ready for something in that other program, that's a good fit for you. And so recovery is evolving. I mean, if we, if what we needed, at, at two years is the same thing we needed on day one. I, I think we may have missed the mark a little bit on how much recovery we achieved in those two years because we hopefully have accomplished a lot and we're looking at our recovery in a different way. We have different priorities. Maybe we have different needs. For me, for example, in the beginning at 12-step meetings, introducing myself, I'm Mary Beth and I'm an addict, I actually found it useful in the beginning. I, I felt like it really needed to pound that idea into my brain. But by eight months, it was feeling like that wasn't really capturing who I was. It was just one part of my life. And so when I found the I'm Mary Beth and I'm a competent woman introduction, at that point, that was much more appropriate for me. That buoyed my spirits, made me feel like I was sitting up straight and holding my head high. And so what works for us in the beginning isn't always what's going to work for us later. So just, you know, be aware that you have choices and that your needs and what's going to give you the best foundation can change over time. So I am curious, um, Mary Beth, I don't know, you, you introduced yourself now as a, an administrative judge, and I'm not sure exactly what variation, but what has being a woman in long-term recovery changed about how the way you are as a judge. Yeah, I mean, so I, I did hear cases where people were um, applying for disability benefits and they had a substance use disorder. And there's actually very specific law that I had to apply about that. Um, but certainly in my uh, questioning of, of that individual, you know, sitting in front of me, I, I hope I did it from a place of neutrality and understanding and just gathered the information that I needed legally in order to make the, the decision that I, that I had to make. Um, but I certainly understood where they were coming from. I certainly didn't view it as, you know, a moral issue or any of the things that sometimes gets played out in decisions. I've seen some decisions uh, that people have received that are based on an old fashioned way of thinking or based on a, you know, a blame that this person is not really um, struggling, not really trying because they didn't have perfect abstinence or something along those lines, or they can't be trusted because they used to be, you know, an IV meth addict like I was. Um, so it was sort of that, but hopefully it was just a discussion to gather the information that I needed. I think that's just one beautiful example of how people that get into recovery and follow their inclination or their purpose or however you want to call it um, can still be impacting the recovery community in so many ways. I'm curious too, you're very open about your recovery. Has that ever kicked back on you in, in, in your career? 
Well, I wasn't. So the first time I ever told an employer that I was in recovery was when I went on the board for Life Ring and I was a judge and I had to like report it for ethics reasons. And and even then I didn't say I had been an IV meth addict. I just said I was in recovery. I think at the time I had like 23 years or something. And I'm guessing that they assumed alcohol and I did not say anything specific. Um, so that was the first time. And it was, I was working on the, the op-ed that ended up in the Wall Street Journal when I was a judge, but it was published after. I became a judge. And so part of the reason I really focus on it now is because I do feel that I can stand up and and talk about my addiction, including, as Adrian mentioned, that it was an I was an IV meth addict, which does have a sort of a, an even bigger negative social um, attitude towards it is because I am no longer have any professional ramifications from saying that. And so I sort of feel like I'm saying it in place of other people who don't really have the ability to say that because they're worried about the repercussions at work. Mm -hmm. How about you, Adrian? Ever any repercussions about being so vocal about your recovery? I, I haven't, you know, um, when I, when I first left school, by mutual agreement with this school. Um, I was at, um, in a medical school program. It was an undergraduate degree, but it was, um, it was for prosthetics and orthotics. And when I was trying to get back into that program, you know, I did not disclose, you know, I was, oh, it was depression and anxiety, you know, and I didn't disclose the substance use um, because I was afraid of the bias, right? And they still didn't take me back and that's okay because I found this other path. And, and once I decided to go into the field, um, I thought, well, you know, there's no reason to keep this a secret anymore. And, you know, one of my favorite memes that floats around Facebook is, you know, when you make, make peace with your demons, people can't hold them against you. Mm. And, you know, every once in a while, I, I remember when I moved to Pennsylvania to work for women for sobriety, and I, I had a lovely um, uh, family that they rented, you know, half of their house to me. It was an apartment. And I lived there for at least a year before one day the wife said to me, we were talking about the program. And she said, but you're not, are you? And she couldn't even say the word. And I said, oh, a drunk? Yeah, I'm a big old drunk. Yeah. <laughs> and she was kind of taken aback. But I'm like, yeah, you know, and and it was it was odd to me that that she thought I would move all the way across the country to you know work for this organization without any personal tie to the matter but um you know that's she was a lovely woman I don't mean to say anything negative about her um she was just so surprised right because I, I think because we have this concept of, of who drug addicts are or who alcoholics are um, and I didn't fit that mold um so I, I don't get a lot of pushback, but I think, you know, I've also chosen a field where um, it's often seen as a, an asset versus mm -hmm. a liability. Um, so our organization has from very, from the beginning has embraced multiple pathways. Uh, Bill White said there are multiple pathways of recovery and all are a cause for celebration, right? Puts it very simply, concisely, trained, you know, thousands of recovery coaches to embrace multiple pathways of recovery. I love what you're talking about, having a variety of options available for anyone seeking recovery. 
whether you believe in God or not, right, Mary Beth? It's not really all, you know, let's have multiple pathways available. Um, how, what's the best way for people listening um, to access your recovery pathways? Um, what, let me get the three there. Women for Sobriety, Life Ring, and She Recovers. What's the best way so for women to find Women for Sobriety, you know, it's, it's womenforsobriety.org. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that will give you most of our public information. We do have a very vibrant online community. Um, that's wfsonline.org. We have meetings through that site, chat meetings and video meetings. Um, and so either one of those, you know, we have social media presence. We have um, a private Facebook group for people who want um, support on their newsfeed. Um, can I ask you a so, question? Yes. Do you, do you have to be a woman? You do. You okay. do. We do ask that that um, people in our our peer support resources are women. Um, we do include LGBT plus individuals under that. So um, you don't have to be identified as as female at birth, um, as long as you identify as female now. That's all we ask. Um, there has been a small offshoot men for sobriety over the years. I think there's one active open, I think there's two active open men for sobriety meetings in Canada. Mm -hmm. um, there's a couple treatment centers that offer men for sobriety meetings, um, but it's pretty few and far between. I would love for our, our men to create a MFS online. Mm -hmm community um but no one's taken the initiative for that and you know it's it's not our place as as you know as women to create a men's space mm -hmm. um <laughs> so but but um some men do you know they they really like our principles they really like the affirmations um and they are they're more than welcome to use them but we do try to keep a a, a safe space for women mm -hmm. um in, in our peer support resources And for, for me, LifeRing is, you know, LifeRing.org. Um, all the meetings, a lot of the materials are there. The books are available on Amazon if you if you do the search for them, including the workbook, which a lot of people like to use. Um, and then She Recovers Foundation is SheRecovers.org. And they also do have a private Facebook group, which a lot of women participate in. It's really an active private Facebook group where women offer each other support and talk about their issues. And the schedule, you know, there's daily meetings and all that is at the main sherecovers.org website. And um, of course, if anyone wanted to get in touch with me, I'm a board member for LifeRing. You can get my email through uh, the LifeRing site. Or of course, I have junketedjudge.com and people can always reach me that way if they have any questions or want to talk about multiple paths at any point. Always happy to answer any questions. What do you think the uh, state of in-person meetings is going to be in the near future? Maybe that the COVID pandemic is like uh, easing. I don't cross my fingers. Um, are we going to return or is it always going to be mostly a digital presence or a combo or what do you think? I mean, for LifeRing, we had uh, online meetings pre-COVID, but I think we had six. And now, of course, it's been almost all of them. We're starting to have more face-to-face -face meetings, and we think there may be some opening up in spring and summer. A lot of the meetings were in medical facilities, and so they're sort of the last to open up. But we will have an 
much larger ongoing online presence, even when face-to-face -face comes back, because many members like it now that they're used to it, but it also allows us to have specialty meetings because we can pull from the whole country. So we have workbook meetings online and women's meetings and LGBTQIA plus and veterans and dual diagnosis and all of that. And She Recovers has local chapters and they, um, even with COVID, we were having outdoor meetings, some of them during the warmer weather. We just did social distancing and that'll all continue. But She Recovers has always been more focused on online. They started out exclusively online, even though later we developed some face-to-face -face chapters, but online is the dominant um, place for uh, She Recovers. Yeah, and women for sobriety, we actually had a, a a pioneering woman back in the mid nineties um, recommend that, that we start online meetings. And we had our first online support community on AOL. <laughs> um, <laughs> that tells you anything. Um, some people listening to this podcast may have never heard of AOL before. Um, but so we've had an online presence since the mid nineties. Um, we have seen quite an explosion with the, the COVID pandemic. Um, we had been kind of dragging our feet on going to video meetings. And of course, um, when all the shutdowns happened, we had, I think, um, our admin in the office, who is an amazing woman, I think she had 60% of our face-to-face -face meetings set up with video conferencing accounts for their meetings within two weeks. I mean, she is a dynamo. Mm -hmm. um, and we do have a lot of those, a lot of those meetings have decided they really like the online format because they don't have to fight traffic. You know, they, the, the facilitators, they don't have to spend half an hour going there, an hour, hour and a half facilitating the meeting, half an hour going home. It just fits into their schedule a lot better. Um, and a lot of women, you know, who are, who have a lot of competing priorities, right? Childcare, house, housekeeping, cooking, uh, working. <clears throat> um, and they really like that online format. We actually developed a new meeting designation. So we have our in-person meetings and a lot of them are still temporary Zoom. Some of them have gone back to in-person, um, but we also developed what's called a regional video meeting. So it still appears on our map. Meeting finder, They're, they will be staying a video meeting long-term, but they still want to build local community. So I think our Cincinnati meeting has decided that their, their regional video meeting, they're still focused on that area so that when they want to get together um, for weekend picnics or whatever, they can still do that. They can still build that local community, but they have the convenience of the weekly Zoom meeting. Mm -hmm. So it's very interesting to see how the COVID pandemic has evolved. I do think one big advantage is that we've seen um, a lot more acceptance from the greater recovery community mm -hmm. about the power of online meetings, mm -hmm. which for smaller organizations such as ours are so important, right? Because like I live in, you know, a very rural town, the chances, you know, to build a women for sobriety meeting here um, may be a big task, right? Whereas I can get an online meeting and I can meet with women from all over the world. So it's not quite as daunting to do that. I think um, I agree with you. Digital recovery, digital recovery is here to stay. Um, it's not going anywhere. Any last closing thoughts you'd like uh, for us to know? Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll just say one. You know what? I, what I found as as a counselor, um, 
I was a, a big fan of, you know, hey, here's some of the options, right? People would come in, AA doesn't work for me. I've been to treatment five times. AA doesn't work, whatever. And I'd say, okay, cool. All right, your first assignment is go look up life ring, go look up smart recovery, go look up refuge recovery, look up women for sobriety. Come back and tell me what you think. And a lot of them would come back and say, you know, I looked at those, those were interesting, but I think I'm going to stick with AA. <laughs> And their buy-in now for AA was much greater, right? So mm-hmm. never underestimate the power of choice, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think the difference between being told you have to do this recovery program and here's all the options, which one do you want to focus on first? Just that power of choice. You know, we, we feel so out of control in addiction right? We've lost control by definition. Um, and so just even to have that, that one choice, this is where I want to get my support. This is how I want to, to explore recovery can be so powerful. Mm. It's a great point. Thank you, Adrian. I guess I would just say as a final thought that it's in, I, it's okay to trust yourself to make these choices. I, I think part of what was scary for me when they were telling me I had to do it the 12 step way was it was at the moment that I was just coming out of 20 years of bad decision-making, right? And so for me to stand back and have to fight the experts that I was paying for treatment was really difficult and it was an unnecessary additional hurdle. Um, The truth is that in recovery, none of us make perfect, 100% perfect decisions, no matter what program we go into. But that doesn't mean that you can't make mostly good decisions or that your your fundamental choices aren't going to be right for you in the long run. It's just important to keep your eyes peeled when they aren't working and when you need to reevaluate it and revisit it and maybe add in something else. If, if someone's program's not working, I always ask, well, what could you add in to strengthen it, right? I mean, that should be the next thought. So, you know, it's, it's, it's perfectly appropriate, valid, effective for you to make your own choices about what's going to work for you. Just, you know, just keep your eye on it. That's all. Just keep your eye on it and you will be fine. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. Thank you Thanks. for sharing your time. We, wow, learned a lot. It's always good to hear from the experts. And I'm, <laughs> I'm really eager to bring what I heard today back to some of my students who just aren't finding their preferred pathway yet. Um, I'm pretty excited to share this with them. So thank you. Yeah, and thank you guys for the work that, that you do. You know, this message is important. Um, lives are on the line so absolutely and thanks so much for having us it's been a really great conversation agreed take care everyone goodbye thank you for listening to the recovery matters podcast we hope that you have connected in some way with what you've heard for more information you can find us on the web at ccar.us Like and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at CCAR, the number four, Recovery. And on Instagram at Recovery Matters Podcast. And you can use the hashtag RecoveryFirst to show support for our mission. Have questions, comments, feedback? Email us at podcast at ccar.us. Fire feeds fire. So if yours is burning right now, reach out and share it with someone.